focused on precision medicine, the All of Us Research Program is an emerging approach to disease treatment and prevention that considers differences in lifestyle, environment, and biological makeup. The program is robust, inviting one million people across the country to help build one of the most diverse health databases in history. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Here with us today to talk about the All of Us Wisconsin program is its principal investigator, Scott Hebring. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Shereen. Well, let's start by hearing a little background about you. Uh, what you know? What's your what's your specialty? What's your education and training? Uh, so I actually grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, and uh, as soon as I uh, left high school and went to my undergrad at uh, University of Wisconsin Eau Claire, my parents uh, moved out of the house and didn't give me a key, uh, but nonetheless <laughs> went went to Eau Claire. Uh, with the intent of eventually going to graduate school. Uh, I was one of those undergrads that uh, probably didn't apply myself as much as I should have, but uh, still had the intent of going to graduate school. So I figured I'd, I'd try to get in through other mechanisms. And, and that mechanism was getting a job as a lab tech working at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So I was really fortunate to be able to work in a really good laboratory there uh, doing uh, human genetic research, which was always my passion since high school. And uh, a few years, uh, I, I got comfortable not having tests and homework and all that fun stuff that uh, made undergrad challenging and got comfortable as a lab tech. But then I had one of those moments uh, where self-reflection uh, when my first child was born. And then I remember pushing my kid down uh, the street with my wife, a newborn, and saying, I'm going to quit my job and go to graduate school. And I was really lucky to have a, a wife who was very supportive and was also very lucky to get into the Mayo Clinic graduate program where I continued uh, research in human genetics with additional focus on something called pharmacogenetics, okay. technical term about how we respond to drugs based on our genetics. And uh, after my graduate work, I came to Marshville Clinic, where I was really fortunate to be able to apply a lot of stuff I learned and, and expand my interests that uh, combines both genetics with medical informatics. And uh, through that work, I was also able to participate and then eventually help lead efforts in Wisconsin for the All of Us Research Program that we're here talking about today. Well, the framework for setting up this program stems from a 2015 report from the National Institutes of Health. It's a work product from the Precision Medicine Initiative Working Group. Explain to me in layman's terms, what is precision medicine? What does that mean exactly? So the, the concept of precision medicine, it, it's, it's a term that has morphed over the years uh, from individualized medicine to personalized medicine. And, and, and now it's defined as uh, precision medicine, uh, meaning that we want to move away from that one size fits all to healthcare, to one where we begin to treat people more as individuals. And Shereen, I imagine you can appreciate that in healthcare, not everyone responds to the care we receive equally. And that's largely because we're all unique individuals. We have different lifestyles, preferences, genetics, and all those factors not only impact what, who gets sick and when we get sick, but also how we are treated. And the idea of precision medicine is really 
trying to advance healthcare to one where we can begin treating people more as individuals than than that one size fits all strategy I mentioned. Well, it's interesting because like a, a depression or high blood pressure treatment for for me might not work for my husband. And I mean, it sounds like it's because of genetics or at least largely because of genetics. Genetics does have a significant component. component. Uh, I won't say it's the only one. It's probably the one we have a better appreciation on now just because uh, over the last few decades, our understanding of the human genome has expanded dramatically. Uh, and, and the research in the field has likewise expanded. Uh, that I, I talked about that term, pharmacogenomics. And the... There's other parts to why we get sick that I alluded to a second ago, whether it's environment and lifestyle, but that those things are always changing. And so it's much harder to grasp that. All of this program is going to hopefully begin to shed uh, light under those other components. But to your point, genetics is a very important and measurable uh, factor when it comes to how we respond to medications. So it, let's get to the nuts and bolts. How do people participate in this program? Is, is it a spit in a tube DNA thing or t take me through it? If I wanted to sign up, what, what would I do? So we want to give people options. So there is an option where people can spit in a tube. Uh, we don't necessarily recommend that. Uh, blood is a, a better biospecimen than uh, saliva for getting DNA. Uh, but what we hope all our participants do when they start their journey at, uh, as being participants within all of us research program is that they would first get on a computer or a smartphone or a tablet and uh, start uh, by creating a profile, an online profile within the program uh, that's their own and only their own that they shouldn't share with anyone else. And they can do all the consenting uh, for the program in the comforts of their own home. Uh, and that doesn't have to be all done at one time. Now, that consent process might take an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, and uh, depending on, on someone's ability to work with technology. And then once they've completed that process, they give us a call or we would call them and we would schedule them for a, a one-time appointment where we would uh, collect one blood sample. Uh, we'd collect hopefully uh, urine and we get some very basic biometrics like height, weight, uh, blood pressure, et cetera. And that would essentially be it. Uh, now, we hope that our participants might be continue to stay engaged with the program. There are surveys that come out every few months, maybe uh, one a year or two a year that we uh, our participants have uh, can volunteer to complete. They don't have to if they don't want to, but we hope they do. The more that they provide to the program about themselves and what makes them unique as individuals, the more uh, useful that information becomes for research and, and hopefully making those next discoveries in biomedical research. So those initial appointments, are they done in Marshfield or can they be done at some of the other clinics or locations throughout the state? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so something I, I didn't mention is that we're part of a larger collaboration uh, that includes so Marshfield is the lead site, but we've partnered with University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, Medical College of Wisconsin out of Milwaukee, and Gunderson Health out of La Crosse. And each of our institutions all have multiple sites where we can enroll participants. 
so within central Wisconsin, we have Marshfield Central, we, we have Wausau, we have Rhinelander, there's uh, Stevens Point, I believe Wisconsin Rapids, Eau Claire on the west side, Chippewa Falls, all these these locations, we are actively enrolling participants within our own brick and mortar uh, uh, institutions, that is Marshall uh, Clinic. But we also have opportunities where we go into communities when there's enough interest, where we can do what's called a pop-up. And we come in, we go to a library or a, a local establishment, and we invite people to come in to, to do all those activities. Okay, so you don't necessarily have to drive for hours and hours to participate. Um, do this not. is okay. That is good to know. And, Once, and, and uh, just sorry ahead. to interrupt, but our participants even have a uh, an option of doing this all remotely. So if, if you're in a, a a corner of Wisconsin where you can't come to any of our sites, you can do this all locally, uh, and you can get a one of these tubes that are mailed to you that we can where we talked about a second ago, spit in a tube, and you can do everything remotely. Okay, so that's an option as well. That's good to know. How has response been for uh, for you at Marshfield Clinic? It's been good. Uh, we we are as a state. Uh, we have nearly thirty thousand participants across across the state wow. that have enrolled, and Wisconsin is contributing equally. Uh, sorry, Marshfield uh, is the the clinic is contributing equally. So our patients are are more than happy to enroll, but we're always looking more because all the things that make us unique, we can never have enough unique people. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's also important when it comes to participants within central Wisconsin is that most of them live in rural communities. And that's a unique population that we are focusing on enrollment because this is a population that's usually underserved in research. When yeah, you, talk, talk about that yeah. a little bit, the importance of rural communities and making sure that they're represented in this research. Yeah. And when you think about what has been done in biomedical research in the past, where, where are those uh, research studies happening? They're happening in large universities and in large uh, healthcare organizations. And those are all linked to or within urban centers. So mm -hmm. naturally, biomedical research in the past has been limited to often white, middle class individuals that live in an urban uh, urban centers within these large city centers. Who's being missed? Well, those are the people who are uh, obviously there's uh, certain demographics and, and economics that have uh, prevented uh, certain ethnicities and social economic status individuals from participating, but there's also geographic limitations when it comes to rural communities. Uh, and so we are particularly focusing on those rural communities because these rural communities, they're exposed to different environments. They have different lifestyles. They have different cultures, uh, different risks to uh, accidents or anything or different diseases. All these factors who make them unique based on where they live, including rural communities, uh, we want to capture that information too, so that the All of Us Research Program can truly impact all of us, not just white middle-class, uh, often men. And I did see that one of the um, one of the goals of the project is really to make sure that, that the participants are, reflect the diversity of the United States as a whole. Do you think that so far at least that goal is being is being met? 
yes. So uh, the research program, uh, based on what, who's enrolled already, about 70% of the population that has been enrolled come from what are these, what are called these underrepresented groups, which include rural communities, includes uh, uh, individuals of uh, different ethnicities, uh, individuals from social economic classes that are usually underrepresented. So 70% of the population enrolled, and we're talking about nearly 750,000 people who have started their journey uh, are coming from these groups. And, that, and of those, 750,000, uh, about 50% of them, nearly 50%, a little bit less than, are uh, of different ethnicities beyond uh, white, Caucasian, non-Hispanic individuals. Scott Hebring is our guest talking about the All of Us Research Program, for which he is a principal investigator. We'll continue our discussion on the implications of the program and what researchers hope to learn in just a moment. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. back on Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. Scott Hebring is our guest today. He's the principal investigator for all of us at Marshfield Clinic Research Institute and a research scientist at the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute. Scott, we're talking about this program. You talked about how people participate. They, they give their blood sample or their saliva sample, their urine sample. Once, once the university or once the all of us program gets that, how is that data being fed into the systems? I mean, is it going into like an, an AI system? What happens to it next? Well, I probably can't speak too much detail about the technical part, but uh, what I can speak to is when it comes to the security of, of the data. Uh, so all our participants who uh, are gracious enough to donate information about themselves, which can include the surveys, which can include the genetic data that comes from DNA that they donate, or uh, electronic health record data that we really uh, hope and encourage our participants are willing to share. That data all goes to a central location uh, within the program. So this is a national initiative. Uh, we're charged with recruiting 100,000 people in the state of Wisconsin, but we're just uh, a fraction of the million or more people that uh, we wanna enroll across the entire United States. But all that data goes to a central location uh, and it is all de-identified so that researchers can mine that data for future research. Uh, and to, to study any one of literally hundreds of diseases that uh, impact our health. So that data is de-identified. So again, we, uh, as, as a researcher who has access to the data myself, I don't actually know who's who, uh, who's enrolled. I don't even know about my own data that I volunteered uh, to, to the to the program. And uh, in addition to not having the capacity to identify people, uh, individuals who do gain access, they have to go through spe special training to make sure that uh, they don't even try an attempt to re-identify anyone. Uh, only people that come from reputable organizations can have access to the data. And of course, there's a whole bunch of, again, the technical part when it comes to the, the security of the data the, to protect it, uh, that's built into it. And, and one of those security things is that the data can never leave the central location. So I can't download data 
uh, and then use for my own purposes. It, it's all maintained under this secure uh, umbrella that, that uh, all of us program maintains. Is there, what, what benefit is there to someone who's participating? I mean, they're they're doing it for the for the good of the of many, right? But is there an individual benefit that people get from giving their their information to this program? Yeah, I mean, the immediate benefit is the the nominal reimbursement that our participants get. They get twenty five dollars to uh, participate, fully participate. But I, I think the the greatest benefit to the program and to the to our participants themselves is the the data that give, is given back. So I mentioned a little while ago when we compare what research was done a few years ago or decades ago and, and the type of type of research that was done and where that was done. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing a shift in how research is done, moving away from seeing participants as study subjects to one where they're more as partners. And the All of Us Research Program is trying to uh, really promote that concept where our participants are partners, where when you participate, we want to give back. We want to make sure you are aware of what your data is being used for. And when discoveries are made, we want to give that information back to you so that we can empower you to, to make the best choices you can with your own healthcare. Again, for that whole philosophy of precision medicine. I'll give you examples. So right now, we give back three reports. We give a genetics uh, ancestry report and human trait report. So that's all one report. So you can learn a little bit about where you might, your ancestries, your ancestors came from. Uh, and you can learn about whether or not you may or may not have a genetic predisposition to cilantro, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, now, genetics isn't everything. And I like making this joke. Uh, so my genetic predisposition to cilantro is I shouldn't like it. In fact, I actually love it. Okay. Uh, people who don't have a uh, people who have a genetic predisposition to not liking cilantro think it tastes like soap. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think so, but I my joke is I equate uh, having soap in my mouth too too often as a kid, and as such, <laughs> I've learned to like the the taste of soap and cilantro. <laughs> Anyways, that's not going to help your healthcare, whether or not you do or don't like cilantro. Conversely, though, the other two reports are pharmacogenomic report. Uh, so how you respond to drugs based on your genes. Nearly 100% of the people who enroll and want this report will receive uh, some information about uh, the genes that they have that could predict how they may or may not respond to a certain drug. And Separate from the All of Us program, my own research at Marshall Clinic, we have evidence that shows that nearly, not only do, does nearly everyone have one of these genetic variants that impact the drugs we take, about 80% of the people at some point in their lifetime will eventually be given a drug that could be contraindicated based on their own genetics. Oh, so, okay. so this is one of the reports that people can can choose to receive and they can choose not to receive it. The third genetic report is uh, a, a report about diseases people may be at risk for having. So about two to three percent of the people walking around, uh, two to three percent of the people who are enrolling in the All of Us uh, research program can choose to receive a report that says that they may be at risk for a very significant genetic disease. And these are only genetic diseases that 
with early interventions and, and early uh, understanding of risks, can we prevent some of the worst outcomes? Whether that's like uh, the BRCA genes related to breast cancer risk, uh, there's colon cancer risk genes, there's heart disease genes, there's high cholesterol disease genes, uh, and some metabolic disease genes. Again, these are all diseases that there's there's interventions or at least screenings that we can implement to, again, hopefully prevent some of the worst outcomes. And participants can choose to receive that, or they can choose to receive any combination of those reports or none of the reports. Okay. So they can, they, uh, like, uh, okay, I'll tell you, my husband does not ever want to know if he's predispos- predisposed to something. He just, he doesn't. And um, I feel the opposite. So we, like, I would like to know. Uh, so if I've, if I, participate in this and I, I don't want to know, I could choose not to get that report. Right. Yep. But if and I you can, cho- and you mm-hmm. can choose and your husband can choose whichever you want and you guys can change your mind as many times as you want until you get your results. Okay. And so okay. Uh, complete flexibility. And then if I get those results and I say, and I see, oh, I'm predisposed to colon cancer, then what? Then do I take that to my doctor and I say, this is what the report says to me. Uh, you know, what, what do I do now? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to provide a little nuance here is that the report goes only to the participant. So if you got a report for your risk for colon cancer, it will go only to you. And my doctor's be, not going to get it. It's, your, your doctor it's, won't get it. Your insurance company won't get it. Your your kids won't get it. Your, your friends won't get it. No one else will get it except you. Uh, and it will be completely up to your own discretion on whether or not you do or do not want to share it with anyone, including your doctor. Now, as someone who works in healthcare, I would encourage people who have a genetic risk for a certain disease to consider sharing it with their doctor. But if you do, it's totally your prerogative to do so. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. So yeah, this isn't something that is going to end up on your um, on your record where, where it might affect your health insurance then. It, it will not, unless you share it with your doctor. And, and then the doctor will probably put that information into your health record. Now, that sounds scary, uh, but there are laws, uh, federal laws and state of Wisconsin laws that actually prevent uh, insurance companies from discriminating, especially health insurance companies from discriminating against people based on their genetics. The, 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 the law is called GINA, and it's been around for about a decade now. Uh, now, it, it, it doesn't protect all discrimination, but at least for the, most of the discrimination that we're really concerned about when it comes to our, our own health insurance premiums, it's supposed to prevent uh, uh, anyone from discriminating you against that based on your genetics. Okay. Precision medicine also takes into account lifestyle and environment, as you as you had said. So how how are those factors being taken into account with this project? Is that part of that interview process? Um, and what kind of questions are being asked to take that into consideration as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, I enrolled about five years ago, so I'm trying to remember all the questions that I received when I was a participant. And I know the questions have evolved slightly, but they haven't changed too much. But some of the, the questions that you're asked includes a, a, a lifestyle questionnaire, uh, which may include the quality of your sleep or... Uh, the, uh, the, t- the level of exercise you get routinely. And, and these are questionnaires that we anticipate will be given to participants 
again uh, as repeat measurements every few years, uh, maybe every five years. So that level of information is captured uh, when participants join. Uh, in addition, uh, there's other ways of bringing in information that doesn't require any effort, additional effort by our participants. So when our participants enroll, we know where they're coming from. They come from Marshall, Wisconsin. They come from Wausau, Wisconsin. They come from Rhinelander. Uh, they come from Wapaka, Wisconsin, wherever. And uh, there, there is information about all those cities and the types of uh, the, the weather <laughs> in those locations. We uh, scientists know about the uh, demographics of those communities and potential uh, environmental hazards. So based on proximity to a, a, a city, that type of information can also go into the program. So scientists can begin to find out how that in complex environment that's ever changing can also impact health. Interesting. Have you had any pushback from anybody or any, whether it's individual people or politicians or whatever, pushing back against this program? Has there been any, been any, any hesitancy um, to participate or to promote it? Yes. Uh, I, I don't want to sugarcoat anything here. This is a lot of information that we're asking participants to donate. And that understandably generates concern and, and, and fear for some uh, because we're all unique people and we want to protect who we are as well. So I, I completely recognize some of those concerns and, and they have been shared. Now we're doing the best we can to alleviate those concerns. Uh, that's in part through education and, and obviously all the, uh, the infrastructure that's built into the program to protect the autonomy of our, our participants. Uh, but, but they're real and those concerns are, are likely not going away, but we, I believe, at least, that we're doing the best we can to alleviate those concerns. Uh, there's always a risk when it comes to participating in research, and that that includes a risk for being re-identified. So I, I can't promise that everyone's concerns are are are, are going to be completely alleviated, but uh, we're doing the best we can to. Uh, build the best program we can to advance science, advance health, so that we can begin to treat people better as more, more as individuals. I know that some tribal communities have concerns about taking part in research studies at all. Do you, do you have any idea how that's being managed? I, I, I understand there were some, some meetings that had taken place to try to work with those communities because they really, um, the researchers really want the tribal communities to participate. Yeah, and, and I don't want to pretend I understand all the the, the complexities of this topic. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'll be the first to admit I'm a white middle-aged middle age man, and who has grown up in in a communities predominantly of white Caucasian, and I grew up in, in a in a good family that uh, was well supported by 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 my parents. So I, I I'm saying this because I lived a sheltered life. But I also recognize that there's been a lot of missteps in in history. There's been some significant ethical uh, issues that have occurred in in research when it comes to working with Native American communities. And the All of Us program wants to a recognize those very significant uh, 
historical wrongdoings uh, while at the same time making sure that they have an equal opportunity to participate in the research because again this the, the whole philosophy is about all of us and native americans uh, are the, the first americans are part of our communities as well uh, wisconsin is actually one of the few uh, our our all of us wisconsin consortium is actually one of the few that were actually awarded a grant to support the all of us research program with native american communities uh, but we are with our grant that we do have, we want to build inroads so we can build partnerships, making sure that whatever research that does come out of the All of Us Research Program in connection and in partnership with the uh, Native American communities, is, that's done in a collaborative way so that we can recognize the cultural complexities that have existed and continue to this day. Because uh, it's important, it's critically important, so that everyone can participate. This is such a huge project. I mean, the the breadth of of this project is enormous. Of uh, one million participants, that's the goal. Do you have a sense of where you are in, in relation to that goal at this time? So the current goal is a million or more. We are at about seven hundred fifty thousand people who have enrolled, but we want a million or more people who have participated fully in the program. Right now, we're we're at about half a million. We we had a very significant challenge uh, with COVID, as everyone has uh, across the United States. The All of us program pretty much stopped all in person activities. We had to move towards a, a pure virtual environment wasn't necessarily the most conducive way and most effective way to enroll. So uh, things were very much slowed down for nearly three years. But uh, we're, we're moving forward now with uh, the program and, and getting back on pace to meet our goals within hopefully the next three, four, five years. Why so many people? I mean, does that help researchers identify patterns maybe that wouldn't emerge in, with, with a smaller sample? What What's the thinking there? Yeah, it, I think it really goes back to the idea that we're all unique. And because we're all unique, in order to begin to parse out some of those uniqueness, those those unique components of what makes us who we are is as people, you need large numbers of people. Uh, so you need large numbers of uh, people who are not only African-American, who are, but are also maybe living in, uh, under the poverty line, who are also living in urban centers, who are also uh, exposed to, uh, let's say, exposed to radon or whatever the environmental component is. But you can imagine the complexities of all those factors are gonna influence health and understanding those and how they each individually con contribute to human health is why we need these real large numbers. And I just gave one example where we start with one very broad demographic and and narrowed it down into a very specific uh, topic. And there are literally millions of trees that you could imagine and branches of how all these com complex environment, genetics and everything else can contribute to human health. And to your point, that's why we need a million or more people. Scott Hebring, Principal Investigator for All of Us at Marshfield Clinic Research Institute, as our guest today discussing this effort. 
and what researchers hope the outcome will be with a goal of 1 million participants nationwide. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. We're back on Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Scott Hebring from the All of Us Research Program is our guest. He stays with us for the hour. Scott, uh, I understand that you had uh, worked through COVID on, on a project related to COVID. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so when we started shutting down uh, the program, or not shutting down is not the right word, but at least dramatically changing how we did our operations during COVID, where everything was done remotely, all our staff were working from home, and we were all being impacted by this devastating disease. We wanted to contribute to our understanding of COVID. And so the national program decided to do a study to understand a little bit more about when COVID joined or entered the United States. I mentioned that this is a national program. We're recruiting across the entire United States, all 50 states, many different communities. Uh, I believe it was in February, I don't remember the exact date, February of 2020, uh, the first index case was laboratory confirmed in Washington, Seattle, Washington, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it was in March of 2020 where really things started to change and, and the whole country began shutting down. So we had the hypothesis that maybe this disease was actually in the United States before that February incident, incident. And so what we did, and when I say we, this is the national program. This isn't here Marshall Clinic, but this wasn't me. But the national program, what they did is they took all the biospecimens that were collected up until we stopped collecting biospecimens in March of 2020 back to December of 2019. This was about 20,000 participants across the United States that had enrolled during that time period. And we took their blood samples uh, that they volunteered and we tested for COVID to see if the, the virus, whether or not they had antibodies to the virus within their blood sample, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus specifically. What did you find? What did you find? And what we found is that there were multiple instances of COVID that was circulating within the communities, within our own uh, samples, uh, weeks before that first index case in February of 2020. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is, now I don't know who that person is, mm -hmm. but one of those first index case, or one of those first cases was actually someone in Wisconsin. Really? Uh, maybe they're in Milwaukee. Maybe they're in Wausau, maybe they're in Madison, Marshfield, or Eau Claire, or Appleton, who knows. But somewhere, someone in Wisconsin actually uh, had COVID before that first known case in, in Seattle, Washington. To the point, though, that I mentioned before, where we want to give back. So when discoveries are made, this is the, one of the philosophies that treat our participants as partners. When, when discovery is made that potentially they would be interested in learning about, we want to give back. And so all 20,000 people who we, we did the testing, they were offered to learn about what their, uh, their blood test was when it came to their uh, COVID antibodies. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it may not, it likely did not impact their health 
because it mm -hmm. was actually those results were given back probably nearly a year after the fact. But it is but still just, just knowing, it's, yeah. you know, just knowing. I think that's really interesting. Talk a little bit about some of the areas of research that you're you're doing and you're focusing on. Yeah, so I do. I mentioned in the very beginning, my interests are in human genetics and medical informatics. And all of this program is a great resource for that type of research because you can combine the genetic data that's being acquired. Uh, that's whole genome sequence data. Uh, which is, has a whole unique, fascinating component to it, because if you think about the Human Genome Project that was completed in uh, 2000, oh, geez, I, sh I should know this, I think it's mm -hmm. 2010, the first draft of the Human Genome Project, that, that, that took billions of dollars to do and many years to do it. Now we're offering this type of test for everyone. Uh, yeah that enrolls. So uh, we have all this genomic data that's being acquired in the All of Us program, and then we have all this health record data that's being acquired. And my particular research is mining that data to understand something called telomeres. So for you and your listeners, a telomer is a very specific type of DNA element that's on our chromosomes. They're at the tips of our chromosomes, and they're meant to protect them because every time a cell divides, our chromosomes get incrementally shorter for reasons that uh, are I probably can't uh, have enough time to explain the, the, the biochemistries, but they get shorter. So you don't want your chromosomes to get too short where they get into your genes. So we have these, these extra DNA caps to them. So the only thing that gets shorter are these, these DNA caps. And what's interesting, because they get shorter, you're born with the longest telomeres and you die with the shortest telomeres because our bodies are constantly, our cells and our bodies are constantly That's dividing, mm -hmm. right? But not all 40-year-olds have the same telomere length. There's variation in that. Not all 50-year-olds have the same telomere length. There's, there's just variation. And there's a lot of factors that impact the way our cells, our telomeres. So cells that divide fast, uh, maybe because they are being exposed to some sort of environmental uh, component that it makes cells divide faster than others. You, you'll just inherently have shorter telomere length than someone that might have cells that don't divide as fast. If you're healthy and you eat well uh, and exercise a lot, you, your cells don't divide as much. And, and so your telomeres are longer than the, the person who may have a poor diet and and may not exercise as much because they have chronic inflammation. Again, that induces uh, our telomeres to uh, shorten. And then genetics also plays a role. And so what we've done with our research through the All of Us program, mining that data is what we can show is that people who have a genetic predisposition to long telomeres have a predisposition to a whole wide variety of cancers. And we're trying to understand that better because it the data is suggesting that this might be a new type of cancer syndrome that we're trying to better understand really no and in, in general having long telomere length is good it means sure. you're living a, a healthy lifestyle but having a genetic predisposition to long telomere length uh might implicate might, something else right and if you think about it, it could be intuitive so what is cancer cancer is caused by a variety of conditions which includes mutations to your genes mm -hmm. And typically when a cell hit, gets a mutation that causes it to start dividing quickly, 
uh, which is an inherent quality of cancer, uh, typically they, they run into a bottleneck, which is our telomeres. Uh, under normal circumstances, our telomeres will shorten to the point where this, the cancer cell will die by itself. But if you have a genetic predisposition to have cancer, or sorry, a genetic predisposition to have long telomeres, then your cell has an innate ability to circumvent that, that, that bottleneck that our cells normally have. Um, so that's one of the hypotheses we're trying to work uh, on to try to understand cancer and how telomeres play a role in cancer. And this information that you're collecting is playing a, a major role in all of this. Yeah. And we're literally one of nearly 9,000 people, uh, scientists, who are studying any one of thousands of different diseases and and biochemistries and biologies uh, within the program because it's it's not about one disease it's about all diseases that impact our health and thus far there's been about 200 uh, manuscripts papers that have been published in scientific journals that are using the all of us program and if you think about that that's nearly 200 potential new discoveries uh, and breakthroughs in biomedical research that may be impacting our health in, in the near-term future. Uh, and another thing I want to emphasize here is that this program is about democratizing the data. I, I said in the very beginning, where was medical biomedical research done before? Large academic institutions, large healthcare organizations, they're the ones that had the ability to do this type of research. Now with all this data localized in a central location where nearly any reputable scientists that come from University of Wisconsin-Madison, Harvard, University of uh, Wisconsin-Stevens Point can have access to the data and make those discoveries. So to really expedite biomedical research. One of the things I read on the All of Us page is this. It says, All of Us aims to make it easy for a variety of researchers from university professors to citizen scientists to make discoveries using the program's data. I mean, how does that work for citizen scientists? Yeah, so all this data is available to anyone and everyone, but at different levels of access. So there's multiple tiers. Uh, so any any person, including yourself, any citizen scientist can go to the All of Us program and gain access to aggregate data. So if you want to know how many people are affected with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, colon cancer, and have an ingrown toenail, you can study that and, and pull that information out from the program and, and get those counts and then begin to understand how they might be related to other diseases. Uh, so everyone and anyone can have access to that, that level of data. Now, when it comes to the individual level data, again, it's all de-identified, but when you, uh, you, you have to have the special training and you have to come from uh, reputable organizations such as University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point or Harvard, uh, equal, uh, opportunity to gain access to the data, uh, then those those individuals will be able to mine the data a little bit more sophisticatedly uh, to understand human disease. I want to ask you about accuracy. And there is some criticism surrounding the accuracy of some ancestral DNA services like 23andMe and Ancestry. How does the All of Us pro Research pro Project make sure that its Ancestry data is accurate? How is this different? Well, I'm not going to, I'm going to avoid speaking towards any of the, the individual companies that offer these types of services uh, that have a service for a cost. 
whereas the all of us research program it's free uh, to the point where you want to when it comes to accuracy we provide the data to our participants and if they disagree with it we encourage them to report it to us so uh, there can be biological reasons why someone may not have an ancestry that they are uh, might be surprised about for example if they had a, a bone marrow transplant and they had their result returned to them it, it the, the blood cells would be from the transplant and not the one necessarily that they were born with. So that, that's a, an example of where things can be very different. Sure. Obviously, there's a risk of um, maternity maternity and paternity concerns. So sure. through adoption or mm -hmm. through uh, complex relationships within families can, can impact uh, what you perceive as being your ancestry to what is actual your ancestry. I like the way uh, you put that. <laughs> uh, and then there, genetics is never absolute. So uh, we we do the best we can with the data we can. And when, again, when we learn something new, we'll be able to modify those uh, so that we can provide the best results possible. Another goal of the program is to connect people with the right clinical studies for their needs. How does that work? Yeah, so... This is going to be an ongoing study that will last hopefully many years. And back to the point I made before, we want to see our participants as partners. And so when new opportunities come along, and there are new opportunities that have uh, spurred from the All this Research Program, so these are secondary research studies, uh, we want to make sure that those research studies become available to them. Uh, maybe it's a clinical trial that... Uh, occurs within a certain location, uh, there may be an opportunity in the future where the, all of this data can be used to mine to see are there participants who may qualify for this clinical trial that they may benefit by their participation. And then uh, it will be an opportunity where some future researcher may be able to connect with those participants and, and ask to see if they want to join the study. So that is just one of many possible uh, scenarios where participants can continue to interact uh, either directly or indirectly through the program by participating in, in additional research studies that may be of more interest to them. Talking about precision medicine, do you see that in a perfect world that this eventually can somehow reduce healthcare costs for people down the road? Yeah, I mean, it, the idea of precision medicine is to provide the best care for the for the individual, and that should be the most affordable care. Uh, example with the pharmacogenomic reports that go out. The hope is by returning these results, our participants will learn a little bit about what drugs they may or may not respond well to, and we would hate to be able to hate to give someone a drug or sometime in the future to someone who will have an adverse drug event that you could have predicted otherwise based on genetics or give them a drug that we know won't work for them and and bad things will happen. And those bad things can often generate expense. Uh, but I, I don't wanna pretend that we live in a bubble and these complexities of costs are, are very complex. Uh, so, as an example, if you give someone, you tell someone that they may not uh, respond well to one drug that's inexpensive, the alternative might be a more expensive drug. So it, it's never a simple answer to the cost, but the hope is by providing the best care, in the end, 
it will be the least expensive cost, not only to the participant or, or to the patient in this case, but also to society. Just briefly, before we close, I you know, I can really hear the enthusiasm in your voice when you talk about genetics and how, how much you really are enthused, enthused about this whole idea. And what what drew you to to this field? What what was it that that made you said, say, yep, the, this is what I want to do with my life? It was Mr. Stofflet, my sophomore biology teacher. Uh, really? <laughs> that was my first exposure to human genetics in a broad sense where I got to learn about Pundit Squares and uh, something called Mendel's Law. Gregor Mendel, who's the the, the grandfather of, of human genetics or of genetics uh, more broadly for that matter. Uh, Mr. Stofflet, my high school uh, biology teacher, was my favorite teacher ever I, forever I had and uh, really made me most interested in genetics. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I've always been interested in biology and, and science and I always wanted to be a scientist. Uh, I was that nerdy kid that turned over rocks in the backyard but uh, to see what was crawling beneath. But as I got older, I uh, got more interest in turning over those metaphorical rocks, which is genetics. I mean, you can't feel and touch it, but you can definitely study it and uh, with technology and everything else. So that, that's, that's where my passion came from. Scott, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And I'm, I'm going to be signing up for the program. I'm, I'm excited to do it. Shireen, I, I hope you uh, enjoy your journey when enjoying the program. Uh, I hope all your listeners do as well. Talk to your family, talk to your friends. Uh, we really want the diversity that reflects everyone in Wisconsin as well as everyone in the United States. To participate, go to joinallofus.org. This is Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward, extending a sincere thanks to our guest, Scott Hebring. Ezra Wall and Joy Ratchkramer assisted in producing this program. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org slash Route 51 and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Wisconsin Public Radio. Mm-hmm.